Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist. I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Several weeks ago, I've attended the annual meeting of the American Society of Hematology in Atlanta, Georgia. During that meeting, there were several presentations, some of which really had practical implications on how we take care of patients with diffused large B-cell lymphomas. One of these presentations was the Polarix trial, which looked at frontline therapy of patients with diffused large B-cell lymphoma. So patients with diffused large B-cell lymphoma are usually treated with a combination of chemotherapy called CHOP plus rituximab, which is a monoclonal antibody against the CD20 antigen. This has been the standard therapy since 2001, 20 years. And there has been many studies after that trial that have all failed in dethroning RCHOP as the king, if you will. Well, the Polarix trial, it was a study, a prospective study that was presented at the American Society of Hematology and really replaced vincristine with polatuzumab uh, in the frontline setting. And it demonstrated improvement in progression free survival over RCHOP. The trial and the, out, and the results of the trial have been published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I wanted to invite several uh, colleagues and lymphoma specialists uh, to, uh, like myself, to discuss really the trial and how, um, how it could affect uh, caring for patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. I've asked doctors Liz Brem from the University of California in Irvine, Daniel Landsberg, University of Pennsylvania, and Matt Matasar from Memorial Sloan Kettering to join me on Healthcare Unfiltered to talk about the Polarix trial. Uh, Dr. Matasar is a co-author on the uh, paper, and Drs. Landsberg and Brem um, are going to provide critical appraisal to the results, as well as what are they going to do with patients that they see now, provided that polatuzumab is available in the frontline setting. I hope you enjoy this type of podcast. It is rather highly specialized for uh, lymphoma patients, but hopefully it has a lot of practical nuggets that will help you as you take care of these patients. Uh, thank you also for supporting Healthcare Unfiltered and being part of the show every Tuesday. Uh, please subscribe to it and rate the show and refer a friend or a colleague to the show as well. You can see all of these podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, Healthcare on Shadi Naban and Healthcare Unfiltered. Subscribe, like, review, and refer. And without further ado, Healthcare Unfiltered, providing critical appraisal to the Polarix trial. Okay, folks, well, it's really a pleasure to have three phenomenal uh, colleagues uh, uh, in the lymphoma world uh, join me on today's podcast. For context, we are taping this on December 20, 20th. 2021, just about a week after the completion of the annual American Society of Hematology meeting, it's going to air in the beginning of 2022. And for those of you who listen to this show, you know that after each large meeting, we have a couple of episodes talking about some of the updates that have some practical implications. There's a lot of science, obviously, lots of exciting stuff, but I like to hone in 
what really can affect clinical practice. And one of the presentations that um, I was certainly intrigued by and impressed with was the Polarix trial. We'll go over it. Uh, we have, uh, again, three phenomenal colleagues, and one of them actually is a co-author on this paper. So um, if we don't like the paper, we will blame him. Uh, if we like the paper, we will not give him the credit. That's how it actually works. So Dan, a little bit about you and where you practice and how you spend your time. Sure. Um, so I'm Dan Landsberg. I'm one of the lymphoma physicians at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, um, large academic medical center. There are actually seven of us that see lymphoma now, which is smaller than Memorial, but pretty good for, for Penn. And um, I, I focus on aggressive B-cell lymphomas, diffuse large B-cell, high-grade B-cell, frontline relapse setting. Um, and um, I am about 50% clinical. I actually spend the rest of my time on paper doing um, administrative work and quality improvement, but have some research interest as well in um, molecular and pathologic classification of aggressive B-cell lymphomas. Um, so this is sort of an interesting uh, topic uh, relative to this paper. So thank you for including me. Thank you so much, Dan. Uh, appreciate it. And, and Matt. Thanks, Jody. Um, so I'm Matt Matasar. I'm a lymphoma doctor at Memorial Sun Kettering Cancer Center. Um, I wear a few different hats at MSK, but, but the one that I'm wearing today for, for this podcast and, and production is as our section head for aggressive B-cell lymphoma, where I have some, some responsibilities in, in helping lead our group's um, research efforts and, and clinical practice in the management of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and other aggressive B-cell lymphomas. And as you pointed out, I, I was an investigator on the Polarix clinical trial and, and happy to be here today to help discuss and dissect our results. Thanks so much, Matt. And uh, Liz, uh, a little bit about you and where you practice. Sure, I'm Liz Brain. I'm at the University of California, Irvine. Um, my practice is a little broad. I see all flavors of lymphoma. I see CLL. I also see some multiple myeloma. And once in a while, I also pretend to be a benign hematologist for better or for worse. Um, I am a clinical translational researcher. Um, I do a lot with SWOG. We have a University of California um, Hematologic Malignancies Consortium, and I'm the lymphoma CLL chair for that. Thank you. So I'm going to be doing very little of the talking, just going to direct the conversation because um, I'm really very interested in, in learning from you and knowing how would you approach these recent data. We'll start by um, then pre-Polarix. We've been always jokingly say that Archop is the king, the emperor, and nobody can dethrone I mean, there are a lot of trials that attempted to improve on our job, but, but failed. Do you want to maybe take us through like a couple of minutes into the landscape? Sure. So, you know, our has been the standard of care probably for the last 15 years or so for newly diagnosed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. It still cures probably about two out of every three patients with this disease, roughly, as first-line therapy. And, you know, so over the years, there have been a number of analyses of patients who aren't cured by RCHOP or subgroups that are less likely to be cured by RCHOP. And essentially the goal has been to improve their frontline therapy and hopefully cure these patients as well. And um, you know, I would say sort of like the two biggest groups that have evolved over the past 15 years or so are the double hit, double expressor lymphomas. So lymphomas that have um, rearrangements in MYC and other genes, and then increased protein expression of MYC and BCL2. And um, we're actually currently in the midst of trials for these patients. Um, you know, we think that our EPOC actually may be a better uh, backbone or therapy for double hit lymphoma patients 
Um, double expressor, it's less clear, but this is a high risk subgroup and, and new novel agents are being added to immunochemotherapy for these patients. Um, what's probably more mature is the non-germinal center or activated B-cell um, group of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma seems to have a worse prognosis when treated with RCHOP. And there have been a number of trials over the years, adding bortezomib, adding lenalidomide, adding ibrutinib to RCHOP in a randomized study. And, and to date, with the exception of maybe lenalidomide, depending on how you look at the data, none of them have improved outcomes as compared to RCHOP alone. Um, and so we're still sort of stuck with RCHOP, even for those high-risk um, patients by IHC or gene expression profiling. And then finally, I'd mentioned our EPOC before, and that was studied head-to-head with RCHOP in a very large uh, cooperative group study for all-comer diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and did not show any improved um, survival as compared to RCHOP with potentially some more toxicity. And so RCHOP is still the standard of care. Um, I'm very curious about these, this Polaric study and, and my take on it is it may still be for the large majority of patients. Um, and I think the way things are going right now, it is still looking at adding new drugs to RCHOP, potentially looking at you know molecular targets or molecular classifications of these patients and subgroups to see how to add new agents to therapy. But, but polituzumab is clearly a, I guess, a subgroup agnostic drug, or at least the way it, it seems to be. And so very interesting study um, and a very interesting combination to take on our job. Before I go to Matt about the Paula, Liz, when you, when you talk about RCHOP, when you talk to a patient who has RCHOP, and I know sometimes you may not delve into the statistics, but to level set for listeners, what do you tell people the cure rate of RCHOP, all comers? Like what, what should a run-of-the-mill DLBCL patient expect when they get RCHOP? Yeah, there's definitely one of those things where actually as you look at more contemporary series of people kind of being treated um, more recently, the numbers do seem like they're getting higher. Um, I think for years, I used to quote people 50, 60%. And I think now newer data sets are looking more like 60 to 70%. And it depends on obviously a number of things, including you know how many sites of disease, um, all sorts of things. But in general, I tell people there's about a 60 to 70% chance of cure with the cyst cycles of RCHOP. So, you know, Matt, we talked about RCHOP. We talked what we expect with RCHOP. What was so special about polituzumab that made you guys as investigators think of um, bringing it into the, the mix? Right. So, so polituzumab vidotin is an antibody drug conjugate, right? So you have an antibody like a protein and stable to the back of it as a toxin, in this case, MMAE, which is an antitubulin. And POLA, for short, has have been developed in the treatment of relapsed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, first all by itself, and then combined with rituximab. And then in, in an important study called GEO29365, I know the name is just awesome, it was compared in a randomized fashion uh, where half of patients got BR, which is an acceptable treatment of relapsed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in patients who are unsuitable to receive high-dose therapy and have got BR plus polituzumab in an unblinded fashion. And it turned out that the people that got the pole added to the BR backbone not only had improved response rates and things, but they actually found an improvement in overall survival. So this was the first time in, in, in the rituximab era that a, we had a randomized trial in relapsed DLBCL that showed overall survival benefit for a novel therapy. So that told us that we had a real drug. And we know that the toxicity profile of POLA is that of basically any antitubulin. It's gonna cause neuropathy and some GI stuff. So then the question became, well, if we really have that good a drug, why don't we 
see what we can do by swapping out vincristine, a drug that has the same toxicity profile, and try replacing it with the potentially more potent POLA and see if we can move the needle thus. And then we conducted a phase 1B and found that the toxicity profile of RCHOP with the Vinca substitution for the POLA actually did have a toxicity profile that looked just like RCHOP. So we said, okay, let's go. And conducted a large global randomized double-blinded uh, trial comparing the standard RCHOP plus placebo to RCHOPOLA plus placebo. Uh, with a primary endpoint of uh, progression-free survival and a bunch of appropriate secondary endpoints. So, so you did not know what you were giving and the patients were not aware what they were receiving. It was a double blind. Exactly right. And a lot of times we do double blinded trials. It's a bit of a wink and a nod, right? You know, you know Dan referenced the, the prior Phoenix trial looking at ibrutinib um, versus placebo added onto the archive backbone. And we kind of all knew who was getting ibrutinib. You know, you, you start taking pills and suddenly you're covered with bruises. You know, you're not getting the placebo. It, it very much did feel during the conduct of the trial, like I had no idea who was getting what. Everybody kind of looked the same. And that was consistent with kind of what we expected, which is that Archipola kind of looks and feels like getting Archop. But it was reassuring as we did the trial that we had um, a comparator arm that probably was going to have a toxicity profile that looked a lot like our shop. Okay. And, you know, uh, Matt, and so you're going to be speaking a little bit more than others just in the beginning until we level set the trial before we discuss it. But um, to Dan's earlier point about the double hits, were mm. these excluded? No, double hit was allowed on the trial. There were quite few patients that were put on with double hit lymphoma. And that gets back to what Dan was saying, which is that a lot of us believe that EPOC is a better treatment so as a clinician, if you're offering participation in a randomized double-line trial, you have to be comfortable with your patient getting either arm. And for those of us that aren't so happy about giving RCHOP as the standard of care for a patient double hit, it, it may not be the right study for such patients. And, and it looked like that was the case. And there were relatively few of those patients that went on to trial. And these were all advanced stage patients. So they were receiving the six cycles of the chemotherapy. So stage three, four disease. That's right. So it was for it was for advanced stage diffuse large B cell lymphoma with two or more of the five IPI risk factors. So it was a selected slightly higher pa higher risk patient population, um, and everybody got six cycles of chemo be to satisfy European regulatory agencies. Everybody got doses seven, eight of rituximab monotherapy as dessert. Um, even though in, in America, in the real world, we don't really do that. You know, those Germans, sometimes they come up with like weird, weird, weird uh, regimens. Always. Okay, so what was the primary endpoint, Matt? So as I said, the primary endpoint for Polarix was an improvement in progression-free survival, and it was powered to have the ability to detect about a 6% improvement in progression-free survival. That was, our, that was our best guess a priori as to what we were going to see. So maybe Liz and Dan... Um, can you reflect on the primary endpoint? Because obviously that's going to play a, a major, uh, you know, it's one of those things where definitely I'm sure you have a lot of colleagues that would say to change DLBCL therapy in the frontline, I need an overall survival benefit in the frontline setting. So progression-free survival was the endpoint. Liz, uh, any thoughts on the primary endpoint? And then Dan. I've gone back and forth on this because I definitely kind of did for a long time kind of feel or was taught that you did really have to change overall survival to move the needle in aggressive large cell lymphoma. And yet I think that things have changed dramatically in the last few years. We went from having basically nothing FDA approved for relapse refractory DLBCL, and now we've got 
we have debates about what order we want to use these different agents in, right? Including POLA, CAR-T, other CD19 targeted agents. And so I think that it's going to be harder and harder, not maybe not quite as difficult as in Hodgkin's, but harder and harder to move the needle on overall survival. So I think as time goes on, I'm kind of coming around that maybe progression-free survival still has a potential benefit because we now have the good problem of more of these people being salvageable in the relapse refractory setting. So I, I can see both sides to the argument, but I, but I can also see the practical side of the argument of it's, it's going to be a long study to prove that overall survival benefit and perhaps a more manageable endpoint like PFS kind of gets the data out there sooner. But I'm, I can see both sides to the argument. Dan, what do you think about PFS as primary endpoint? Yeah, I think for this study, it's very reasonable. <clears throat> and um, I do like that it was two-year PFS and not median PFS or some other sort of endpoint that may be less um, relevant. I mean, I think of aggressive lymphoma for cure. And so when you're looking at the frontline setting, if you're progression-free uh, at two years, you're probably cured or, or very, very likely to be cured. So I like that endpoint. The other thing is when you have a disease where you cure a lot of people, when you start to look at overall survival, I mean, they may be dying of other things. And you have a population, maybe the average age, I think, uh, for these patients was in their 60s. And, you know, overall survival is not necessarily totally determined by lymphoma-specific survival. And um, patients can die of other things and make overall survival analyses complicated. If you're talking about, you know, multiply relapsed large cell lymphoma or another uh, tumor, unfortunately, where patients aren't very likely to be cured, Overall survival and progression-free survival are probably very similar, or at least, um, you know, the cancer is the cause of death for those patients. And so I think it's appropriate. And um, again, I like long-term survival, not medians or one year. I think two years is a pretty good endpoint um, for this disease uh, with frontline therapy. Okay. I guess, uh, Matt, we were okay with the endpoint with some reservations. So... Um, what, uh, uh, and they have the secondary endpoint, you mentioned variety of secondary endpoints. So um, what did the, what were the results and um, the median follow-up? I think the median follow-up right now, so, so we read out when we had, when we had two years, as we've said, um, uh, as Dan pointed out, because we think that that two-year threshold is an important one and, you know, for patients diagnosed with large cell lymphoma. And what we see is that we met the pre-specified primary endpoint with a six and a half percent improvement in progression-free survival. And as of yet, no detectable difference in overall survival, although it's an early cut for OS, given that we're doing better with taking care of patients with relapsed large cell lymphoma. And our final OS cut um, data sweep is going to come in, in sort of the middle of 2022. And that'll be um, another chance to see if we've seen any separation in survival between RTOP and, and the novel therapy. Uh, Matt, I presume you're tracking the post-progression therapies between both arms? We are, both in terms of what patients get, as well as their subsequent outcomes. I'll have to say, Liz, I'm a little bit curious of what the patients after the polar arm are receiving. Um, uh, I mean, the R-CHOP, probably they're going to get CAR-T. I mean, I don't know. But what, what are your thoughts in terms of post-progression therapies? Well, this is an interesting question, right? And this particularly, uh, possibly a more complicated question um, had we, you know, now that we have all the additional data we had at ASH this year, I mean, certainly if somebody progresses on POLA-based therapy up front, we're not going to, I, I certainly wouldn't give them, um, you know, POLA in the relapse refractory setting. And it, But, you know, obviously there was 
I want to say obviously, I'm pretty darn sure there was nobody who got Polis CHP um, and then uh, went on to, you know, Transcend or Valinda or any of those trials. Of, but it is, you know, it, it is an antibody drug conjugate, right? And so there is still a mechanism of action that's cytotoxic. So I think you could still make the argument for after Polis CHP upfront, if someone relapses, particularly within the first year, now that we have all the data that we have, you would certainly could make that argument for CAR T cell therapy um, in those patients. Um, so I, I'm not sure at this moment, other than not giving POLA, I would necessarily approach a patient who relapsed after, after POLA CHP any differently than someone who um, relapsed after our CHOP, but um, be interested to know if other people feel differently. Yeah, then the reason I asked this question also is because with, you know, whether we, you know, I'm doing another podcast on the CAR-T data, but, you know, if you believe the Zuma 7, for example, CAR-T is better than transplant. So the post-progression therapy that Matt referred to, if some folks are getting AxiCell versus transplant, you know, it could cloud the interpretation of survival, I presume. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I mean, I think these patients should fall into the same categories that our CHOP or our EPOC uh, treated patients do with respect to CAR-T as a next line of therapy. And so if it's approved for patients who relapse within a year or refractory, I think these patients should fall in. And um, you know, the complicated thing is every time the frontline therapy gets better, patients tend to do less well with transplants. You know, A lot of patients were cured with auto transplant following CHOP probably because they had inferior frontline therapy and, and ended up being cured with second line chemotherapy. And you know, we know that from CORAL. Um, I'm not sure that that this group will do significantly different, uh, you know, receiving polar R chip versus R chop, because I think the difference is a little bit more modest. But um, I think they're going to do as well or poorly with second line transplant as R chop treated patients, and I definitely think they should be included in, you know, the ability to get second line CAR T um, if that is going to be the case down the road. So Matt, the primary endpoint was achieved. PFS. Uh, secondary endpoints, you said OS was the same. Uh, how about toxicity and any other additional endpoints? Right. And, and, and the toxicity argument and discussion is really an important one here, I think, in, in, in how we figure out what to do with these data. Uh, the toxicity results were very much in line with, with what we were hoping to see based on the phase 1B experience, which is that despite you know PV having a uh, risk of neuropathy associated with it. The rates of neuropathy were not higher with the archipola arm than standard archop, in fact, a smidgen lower. Cream and discontinuation due to AE was not higher for the pola containing arm. Dose reductions were a little bit more common in the standard archop arm. The only toxicity that was a little bit higher in the archipola patients was a little bit higher low-grade diarrhea. But the safety profile was really very much in line with what we get with, with our CHOP, and that for me is very reassuring. Okay, so anything else pertaining to that study? We have the we talked about primary endpoint, secondary endpoint, toxicity. Any other elements in the study, Matt, that you want to share before we try to discuss the practical implications? I guess the one thing that we, that that we haven't talked about yet is is the the forest plots, um, and they weren't they weren't shared during the ASH presentation due to time constraints, but they're there in all their glory in the, in the published manuscript. And there's some, some odd findings there that, that even those of us that participated in the study are still scratching our heads over a little bit. I, I've always 
said that forest plots are hypothesis generating, not practice guiding, and that they're they're they give us signal that we should then think about with subsequent analysis or subsequent trials, and not let us cherry pick who we think should or shouldn't get a treatment. That being said, it looks like among the IPI groups, the IPI twos didn't have as much benefit, and the IPI three to five had more. That's kind of what you expect. The higher the risk, the more delta you're going to be able to see with an improved therapy. The cell of origin data was a little bit weird. Um, and in all the previous experience, there's not really been any difference in outcomes by germinal center, non-germinal center when we've looked at polo-based therapies, whether it's monotherapy combined with BR, you have it. But here we actually saw um, a pretty stark differential in terms of the germinal center patients not deriving that much benefit and the, uh, the non-germinal center patients seeming to derive outsized benefit. Don't know exactly what to do with that, but the, the finding is the finding. Liz, yeah. yeah. Liz and then Dan, what do you think about these additional um, elements that Matt mentioned and specifically the forest plot? I found those actually really thought provoking because I think when you, and I have another comment I want to throw in here as well. So I, I thought when you took a step back and you looked at the overall you know, difference in, you know, two-year PFS being 6%, you know, it's, it's hard based on just that alone to say, okay, this is going to dramatically, this is going to, we're going to throw out our chop and everybody's going to get polis CHP. Um, when, you know, is that really that 6% worth the increased cost? Um, it does look like, though, just looking back at the, um, adverse events, there was slightly more febrile neutropenia in the polis CHP group, but otherwise I would agree um, with Matt that things were fairly balanced between the two arms. Um, so I actually remember the whole um, ASH presentation, like going, where are the subgroups? Where are the subgroups? Because I really thought that that was where the money was going to be in terms of guiding us towards thinking about how to implement this and thinking about the subsequent trials. Just while we were talking, I... Um, pulled up the supplement and the eligibility, because I really wanted to look at the eligibility criteria because I have, have to be honest with you, I haven't really dissected quite yet, dissected it quite yet. And one thing I'm noticing is actually anyone with a history of indolent lymphoma was excluded. So this would imply that transformed lymphomas were excluded. So just something for us to just keep in the back of our mind when we look at this trial. Also noticing that a current diagnosis of follicular lymphoma grade 3B was also excluded. And I do think that this means that this trial may differ um, in some ways in terms of the population compared to other upfront DLBCL studies. Um, the other thing, and Matt, I want to question this because you mentioned advanced stage, but if you look at the eligibility criteria, all it says is you had to have one um, measurable lesion. So was it truly an only an advanced stage study? Um, I think it was all, I think it was all stage three, four. I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but that's my recollection and it's IPI two plus. Maybe we can, uh, in the, uh, as Dan comments on this, Liz, maybe we could look at the patient characteristics. I'm pretty sure it's divided by stage. There may be few that escaped uh, with early stage. Um, as, as Liz is looking at this, Dan, comments on what Matt mentioned pertaining to additional stuff that we just talked about? Yeah, I'll make one sub-comment before that. So um, CNS prophylaxis, which is like a huge topic of debate right now, I, I still like to give IV methotrexate as CNS prophylaxis for certain patients, although that might be falling out of favor and the study didn't allow that. It allowed IT. Um, I didn't not enroll anybody. We had it open at Penn and enrolled a few patients. So I didn't not enroll anyone because of that, but we have to think about these frontline large cell studies and, and prophylaxis and the fact that different investigators have different 
um, sort of preferences. And, and there certainly could have been a lot of patients with um, risk for CNS relapse, although the percentages were relatively low. Um, the second thing is so that the EBC, I'm, I'm sort of trying to wrap my head around and why those patients would do so much better. I did see in that forest plot, which I agree is the most exciting part of the study, that the um, two-year progression-free survival for the RCHOP treated patients with ABC cell of origin was 58.8%, was which seems a little low um, for a clinical trial with ABC patients. And so I looked up ROBUST, which was the um, follicular, excuse me, the lenalidomide, uh, RCHOP plus minus lenalidomide frontline study I alluded to before. And that was also IPI2 or higher. And their um, two-year survival for the RCHOP treated arm was 64%. And you have to go back and look for other trials that, that restricted to these patients with that IPI, but it seems a little low. So maybe why there is a difference on the forest plot could be the control arm actually had a little bit of a worse outcome with RCHOP. Um, and sort of biologically, I'm not really sure why that is either. So there's preclinical data that suggests that CD79B mutations don't affect binding and internalization of the drug. And we know CD79B mutations are more prevalent in some forms of ABC, DLBCL, but since it doesn't really seem to predict response, I, I don't biologically understand why the ABC patients would do better and have a higher response rate. And I think a lot of people are going to use this drug um, if it's approved to this combination for ABC, DLBCL, because if you look, just look at a forest plot, it's probably the box that is farthest to the left. But um, you know, I'm not really sure there's a rationale for that. And I think that could be you know, sort of random chance, even though this is a randomized study. Um, I do think the IP, higher risk IPI three to five, I potentially think about it. And then older versus younger patients. So the older patients had, had better outcomes with Paula. I, you know, not really sure what to say about that. Um, I, I think diffuse large B cell does change over time or rather as people age or, or diagnosed at later ages. But again, biologically, I'm not really sure why that is. So I have trouble with the forest plots to some degree, as Matt was alluding to. And if you believe them academically as just being hypothesis generating, that's one thing. But if you look at the questions we're all going to get, you know, from, from community oncologists and colleagues, you know, everybody's going to treat the patients who are on the left of the forest plot with this. And I, I don't really know if we have an explanation for why we should do that in some cases. I share the head scratching about the ABC subtype because I, I agree that there's no biologic plausible reason um, why one um, cell of origin should do better than the other. And obviously I suspect part of the reason this move, you know, this move forward the way it is, and I think Matt alluded to is it is a cell of or it was theoretically a cell of origin agnostic strategy. Um, so I, I share that head scratching. Um, it would be interesting, and maybe Matt knows if there's anything planned, like is there any plan to go back and look at, for example, some of the cl molecular clusters that have been described, right, by like with the ship group and the loose stout group and see if there's maybe more to it than just cell of origin and maybe something else played into this. Um, but to go back to my original uh, question about stage, so um, uh, on the POLA-CHP arm, 10.7%, uh, so not a huge number of patients, but 47 patients um, were stage one or two, and the RCHOP arm, 11.8% uh, or 52 patients were stage one or stage two. So it didn't, wasn't the bulk of the population, but I do think as we talk about this, it is important to be aware that there were some limited stage disease patients on the trial. So Matt, you, uh, you claim forest plot is hypothesis generating, but it's confusing us. So what, any, any, when you guys were discussing the paper and the out, uh, output, did you, uh, 
Did you think of a biological rationale for what you've observed in the forest? I, I really don't. I really don't see one. And, you know, people are trying to think, well, you know, could it have to do with CD79B signaling and maybe the antibodies actually doing something in and of itself in these patients? And it's not just about delivering MMAE. It may also just be that, remember that, you know, pound for pound ABCs are higher risk. This is univariate forest plotting. Maybe this is just an overrepresentation of higher risk disease. They're trying to do some more multivariate work. They will do some parsing by more modern um, classifiers to see if there's any other biological signal. And, and they're gonna follow this in other you know, trials that are ongoing as we continue to develop poll in other settings to see if there's something else about this in the first line setting that, that is different. And there's, there's other clinical trials ongoing exploring poll in other settings in untreated lymphoma. So we'll do that work. But at the end of the day, I, 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 I stick by my guns. It's hypothesis generating. And I think that if you're looking at that and saying, I'm going to give this treatment to an ABC and not a GCB, I think you're doing it wrong. So the other thing that Dan mentioned, and I'm curious to hear what Matt and Liz have to say about this, because I'll try not to voice my opinion as a moderator, but I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make an exception, which is the CNS prophylaxis. I got to tell you, Dan, I, I am not convinced it adds anything anymore. Uh, don't get me wrong. I've given a lot of CNS prophylaxis in my career. But I increasingly, I keep saying, seeing data that just shows it doesn't work. And I really was pretty impressed with Matt Wilson's presentation. It was an oral presentation on CNS that, I don't know, kind of almost put the nail in the coffin for me um, for CNS prophylaxis. I'm pretty sure we all get tempted, right? When you see that high IPI, external disease, all that stuff. But um, the data, at least to me, is not there. So I guess my question to Liz and Matt, what do they do for CNS prophylaxis? And I, and I, I would hope, actually, Matt, as a, as a co-author, that hopefully some subsequent papers of this is going to look at CNS disease specifically, because I really feel this is an important part. Liz, we, we, we actually have those numbers out of Polaris already, Chadi. And, and ah, okay. actually, there was actually relatively little CNS relapse in either arm, and there was no uh, imbalance. There's I've no actually got the paper. It, I've got the paper in front of me. So um, yeah, three percent or thirteen patients in the policy chip group, and twelve patients or two point seven percent in the RCHOP group. But the CNS prophylaxis was given to like in either arm. No, wasn't it? Um, it was. I, IT methotrexate excluded. Oh, only IT. Okay. Matt uh, and Liz, uh, what's your sense after Ash? I know we're we're off topic just for this CNS prophylaxis, because I actually did an entire show on CNS prophylaxis about six months ago. What do you do after the last ASH meeting for CNS? So I, I've been a long time holdout with you, Charlie. I've, I've been like, well, this is all <laughs> retrospective data. It's all biased. I'm going to keep giving people IV methotrexate because this is what I do. I, you know, the data at ASH, I, I think, were very persuasive that a, a routine use of high-dose methotrexate as prophylaxis is just no longer sustainable. Now, listen, there's going to be subsets of patients that are, un, that are not well represented in this data. You know, are there a lot of patients there with, with adrenal disease? Yeah, we're all going to try to find those subsets that we believe in our heart. We're still helping with high-dose methotrexate that are underrepresented in these data sets and still do it to our patients, for our patients, with our patients. But I think that routine high-dose methotrexate on the basis of CNS-IPI is, is dead. Liz, you concur? 
I more or less agree. I think um, after last year's ASH, IT therapy was pretty much dead for me. And I found that I was so kind of the intermediate risk CNS IPIs where maybe in the past I would have thought about IT. I've kind of, I kind of talked myself out of it. But then there were still those few patients who I was really worried about, whether that be number of uh, several extranodal sites, uh, double hit disease, um, you know, adrenal disease, those sorts of things. I was finding myself still using high dose methotrexate. Um, you know, I have to go back. I mean, that data set, particularly from Australia, was huge. And they really did a nice job even breaking out all these high, they like knew what we were going to ask. They were like, here's the double hit patients. Here's the testicular patients. Like they had it all there for us. And basically nobody benefited. And so I, I have to do a little soul searching um, for those particular patients and like kind of stare at the numbers again before I can feel like I can fully declare high dose methotrexate dead. But I'm it's it's pretty hard. It's I'm this close. No, no, but but you know what? Look, it's pretty hard to abandon a practice. We've always thought it helps. I mean, we've all done that. And I think, you know, you get a patient tomorrow with testicular lymphoma, right? With a high LDH, and you're going to be thinking a lot about not giving a couple of cycles of high dose methotrexate. So, I, you know, uh, it's not easy. Uh, decision certainly, but um, I'm with you. I think the data is what the data is. It's almost like autologous transplant doesn't work for breast cancer. Um, and I would desperately love prospective data. It just seems like it's never going to happen. It's like the more there's so much bias and now so much retrospective data, it just seems like it's never going to happen. I think that's well, the best. I think the prospective data we're going to get is going to be using CSF, CTDNA. Yeah. I think that's the way forward. You know, Ash's data was were just lovely. I think yeah. there's a real opportunity to be more nuanced and and sophisticated in in when and how we offer CNS prophylaxis on the basis of molecular as opposed to you know crude risk classifications. Okay, so the last 15 minutes we got to talk about what do we do next, right? So we talked about the paper, we talked about the trial, we talked about the output. And unfortunately, when you're going to see a patient tomorrow, uh, they're not going to be asking for your critical appraisal. They want to decide, they want to know what you're going to do for them. So we'll start with Dan. How are you going to integrate that data in your clinical practice? Because the paper is out, it's published, it's NEJM. So uh, I presume you're going to have another paper next year, another ASH presentation with the overall survival, but that's what you have right now. Yeah, well, the easy thing I could say is if I don't not sure about the data yet, it's not approved and, and I can't get you, Paula, in the front line. But, you know, I would really think about for a higher risk patient that doesn't have um, higher risk IPI, that doesn't really have another good option on a trial or, you know, it's double hit and, and might need our epoch. But I mean, I, I think this trial is very interesting in the, in the setting of these um, sort of molecularly driven trials like Ibrutinib and now there's one with Acala. I really like the ABC subtype and figuring out the molecular classifications and adding targeted drugs. And this is like a, like not, this is like a therapy. This is not specific. This is just adding something more. And I, and I think that could be the way things go. You know, there's a lot of treatments we have in DLBCL like CAR-T that don't seem to really preference one subtype over another. It works or doesn't work in, in all subtypes. But I, I think I'm more interested in seeing how we can use targeted agents, combining them with RCHOP. And now the next question for me will be, so if I'm interested in a trial or talking to a company or thinking of one on my own, you know, is do we have to add drug X to Paula R-chip? I think that's the next thing in these trials that are ongoing right now. 
are they unethical if they're drug X, you know, or RCHOP plus minus drug X because Paula or CHIP is the, is the next thing. And when I talk to someone about a trial on the front line, do I have equipoise that I'm going to give them potentially the control arm as Matt was alluding to, you have to be comfortable with the control arm for your patient. So, I mean, I'm not ready to use it yet. I think probably the higher risk patients I, I might, but I would also love to offer them something a little bit more biologically sound based on their type of uh, subtype of DLBCL, I should say. And, and that's what I'm looking forward to, but this will definitely complicate things. What will the control arm be in the next, uh, next studies? Just like B is it BVAVD or ABVD for advanced stage Hodgkin? What do you, what do you randomize against with these next trials? And I think that's what this is going to cause us to think about. And I'm pretty sure it will be, a, it will get the indication, you know, very, very shortly. So I, I think, um, that will happen. Liz, what do you do for your patient coming in the door tomorrow? Done a lot of soul searching about this. And I've also done a lot of soul searching uh, in the category that Dan has alluded to as someone who currently has a some, uh, some concoction of RCHOP plus X study uh, ongoing right now. This is exactly some of the soul searching that we're doing about, is this still an appropriate trial to run now that this data is out there? Is this going to be the standard of care? And um, I'll tell for what it's worth, some of my collaborators on that study are not about to change their um, standard of care tomorrow, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll obviously discuss it more. Um, for the patient that walks in the door tomorrow, it's hard because you're trying to balance the data, you're trying to balance the cost, um, and you're trying to think about, you know, am I saving this person a CAR T or um, an potentially an autologous transplant down the line? And I think this was. As it was alluded to, I think this, I feel very similar to this as I felt about the Echelon 1 data, which is like big picture, um, is this kind of saving or costing society more? You know, you can make the argument for, you know, they, they gave us the data for Echelon 1, which was by using BV, um, ABD, you're saving X number of transplants, right? And then you could do that math and kind of decide, is this big picture what makes sense? Um, and you know, you're similar here, you could say by using the POLA up front, am I saving people for more salvage therapy, more CAR T cells and those sorts of things. So we don't have those, that, those numbers yet. Um, but I have to say it is compelling particular for the high IPI patients. I agree academically with Matt that these forest plots should be hypothesis generating, but I also agree that um, I'm not gonna have a study just in high IPI patients available to me tomorrow. And if this were approved and available, and especially with that toxicity profile, um, I really would have to seriously think about this for the next high IPI patient that walks through the door. And it is going to be uh, approved rather. I mean, again, if we have put our guessing hat will be approved. And, and you know, I'll have to say with the forest plots, it's hard to, we always have cognitive bias. Once you see it, you can't take it away from your memory because you have it, right? So Matt, you, you're you co-author of the paper. How are you going to do? Um, you know, you've been integral member of the actual trial that led to its conclusion. So what are you going to do for the next patient? Right. See, you know, I, I always try to look at my own data with skepticism, right? You, you, you don't want to think that your baby is the best in the class. But, but I look at it like this. I have a treatment that has a six and a half percent chance of sparing my patient's second line therapy with a toxicity profile that's basically the same. You know, you know, a point here, a point there. This is not echelon one, where uh, you know I have a, where I, I have ABVD followed by AVD, raffle de-escalation versus neuropathy with BVAVD, where we have to help the patient weigh 
the risks and the benefits of these two approaches for an MPFS benefit without overall survival. This is a treatment that is basically the same toxicity profile with a six and a half percent chance of sparing them second line pain and suffering. I don't know how I would not offer it to every possible patient. And I, I would argue that, that it would be very hard to explain to a patient why I wanted them to get RCHOP if they could get RCHIP PV. To say that it's because of cost, I think that we talk about cost all wrong, right? I am not fundamentally, as an, as an oncologist in a room with a patient, a steward of society. I am there to help my patient. And societal costs, system costs, you know, I kind of leave that at the door. You want to talk to me about out-of-pocket costs, the, the cost for my individual patient, super relevant in that room. But if I have a chance to spare my patient the risk of relapse at, the, at, at you know, at, you know and, and at the cost of society, I don't see that as my responsibility. My responsibility is to care of my patient, full stop. Yeah, and I think actually a lot of patients also, um, a lot of patients when they're faced with illness, probably the last thing on their mind is the societal impact, right? I mean, they just want to get the best treatment. But I'll, I'll tell you, Matt, one of the things that in terms of the, um, the reason why some folks might say I wouldn't give it is not, is not cost, it's just simply, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a therapy that is not going to make patients live longer. Uh, and again, that's really why. It's basically the both therapies are equally effective. If you're going to live five years with this, you're going to still live five years with the other one. You know what I mean? Right, but when you look at what's happening to the patients, right? Let me tell you, as somebody who takes care of patients with relapsed large cell lymphoma, like nobody's gonna sign up for that. Nobody says, you know what I really want is second line therapy for large cell. That sounds like a good thing to do with my time. This CAR T cell is gonna be so much expensive. fun. Right, there's nothing that you do to a relapsed patient that's, that, that they're gonna sign up for that, right? Who, nobody's gonna raise their hands. So if I have a chance to spare my patient having to go through all that, even if we're gonna end up curing the same number because we're gonna put them through all the distress that relapse large cell therapy brings on people. If I can spare my patient that with a treatment that's no more toxic for me, that's, that's a no brainer. Dan, it seems like it's, uh, you know, I mean, I think if you take any stage three, four disease, it seems very little reason not to give this therapy if approved, I guess the administration, is it the same duration of therapy? Is there any other conveniences, anything else pertaining to Hawaii? It's given, the drug is given, about the same. Short IV, peripheral, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have to think of things like, so what about our hospital formulary, which doesn't have Paolo on it? And what about the newly diagnosed I guess patient? The, I guess take, take all of that away, um, yeah. put the clinician hat. What I'm curious about, after this trial is already published and the drug, let's say, is available in the next couple of months, which patient? you will give RCHOP to in stage three or four disease. Is this, I guess, uh, this is practice changing? Like we, we've, we've finally dethroned RCHOP? I feel like if somebody had germinal center disease and a low IPI, I'd still, again, I, I accept Matt's point about the forest plots, but <laughs> man, I'd have a hard time believing that that person couldn't still be charged. That's going to be the last time Matt put the forest plot in his papers. No, it's it, it, it's super important. But I agree with Liz, I agree with Liz. You know, for the low IPI, you know, putting aside forest plot dissection and and the sins of our fathers, I you know, 
it's IPI2 plus in the study. It's 18 to 80 in the study. So, you know, elderly patients who are getting, you know, our mini chop or GCVP, I don't think you can substitute polo. We don't know those patients yet. IPI01, I would give our shot. You know, it, look at who we studied, look at the outcomes and, and you know, be rigorous about it. Although, although, although to play devil's advocate, there is no biological, well, I realize zero to one is different risk than two to five. But there is no reason to think that POLA is going to be less effective in the zero to one. But the cure rate's higher, so the delta is smaller. So it right. may be that the delta is is unmeasurable. Less than 6%, what you're saying, PFS. Yeah. Um, so uh, if there's a community oncologist listening to this um, this podcast, and, and there are plenty that do, uh, you would think that it's fair to say once the drug is approved, it's a matter of just getting familiar with the drug toxicity. But uh, it's a, this is an important, uh, you know, I feel like I, we have to write an editorial, call it the death of our chop or something. I don't know. I think it's going to get a lot of uptick. I think it's going to get used because I do think we we only have a handful of situations where something has been better than our chop. And this is user-friendly, well-tolerated. But I also have to agree that it seems like we could still do better. Like I would feel bad for us to say, okay, this is what we're doing now. And then we kind of, I don't know that we would really abandon coming up with better upfront regimens, but I mean, we could still do better than a 6% PFS benefit, right? So I think we can do this, but we still have to think about, well, what is the next thing? Whether it's more molecularly driven, whether it's whatever, um, I still feel like there's a, we could do better. So I totally agree. And I I think that this proves that work, Liz, because, you know, up until now, we've all been afraid that you just can't beat RCHOP in a study. You just can't be done. We've proven that, you know, that that RCHOP can take a punch. So if anything, we should redouble our efforts with First Mind, with Escalade, with with all the work that we're doing to try to build upon standards of care, because we've seen that we can beat RCHOP. So that's my last question, uh, I promise, which is what are the current trials that are looking to over, you know, to uh, to beat RCHOP, where RCHOP is the control arm? And genuinely, what do you do with these trials? I mean, I, I mean, you know, I mean, you well know that if we believe that this is the standard now, these trials need to be amended. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's what I would say as, uh, what, what do you, what, how many trials are ongoing right now looking at RCHOP as a control and what do you do tomorrow for these trials? Yeah, there are, there are a bunch. I mean, first mine, as Matt mentioned, there's the ECOG study for the double expressors with RCHOP plus mice Ven. There's ACALA, you know, RCHOP plus mice ACALA. There's a couple I'm interested in. There are more, there are investigator or initiate studies like Liz may have, you know, there's, there's a lot. I mean, my, I, I don't, no, I guess they have to be changed. I suppose you're right. But I I guess my overall take on this is we can still do better than 6% for certain subgroups. And again, like a really detailed analysis will probably show that some of the really high risk groups aren't getting as much of a, a bump. But uh, I mean, I, I haven't lived through having to see frontline studies amended for, for large cell. I, I don't know what the implications are, you know, phase ones with the novel agent and polar. I mean, it just really, it slows down advancement for, to some degree, I mean, appropriately so, but it's a big hit um, 
for all these studies. So I, I don't know. I'm, I, I don't want to see that side of it. I just want to maybe use it in clinic and forget that we have to change research, but you can't, I mean, can't do what it I'll that way. Is that, is that first mind, which is, you know, the evaluation of tafacitumab, lenalidomide in, in, plus RCHOP, and Escalade, which is RCHOP plus or minus the calbrutinib, neither of these studies is going to adopt the polituzumab backbone. They've, they're both already going. They're both accruing. They're both global studies. Even if we adopt RCHOP, Archipola in the U.S., the same may well not be true of other regulatory agencies. And there's right. no overall survival benefit, which is a different ethical threshold. But it's just difficult to interpret these results, at least in the U.S., right? I mean, like once these trials read out, it, it, I don't know, how do you... Um, right, we may, we may end up with a, you know, God forbid they all read, well, not God forbid, if they all read out with PFS without OS benefits as, as uh, Polaris did, then we're going to end up with a segmented yeah. uh, marketplace, yeah. if you will, where we have lots of options that all appear to improve PFS. And yeah, but why, but Matt, 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 let me ask you a philosophical question. Why can't we, why can't they change? Like, so we got the, like, it's, you know, it's a new development. Why can't they be amended and say, you know what, we are going to stop enrolling to the, I, I don't know, like, why can't that be, because the because the sponsors would have to buy all that polar yeah i mean yeah unless you it's not, uh, unless it's, it's uh, not feasible at the you know as a as, as in the conduct of research the the budget would be would be unsustainable well, unless it's approved and you can use it commercially i guess or insurance right so you either you, yeah, either, but you either change the design and constrain it to only those countries that use it which right. completely obliterates the the design in terms of the time to accrual it, it's just not it's just not possible liz you're going to say something sorry no and i would agree i don't i don't think we're going to see this approved anytime soon in europe so i agree that these kind of big international studies i see it's highly unlikely that the the standard of care arm is going to change because even if they get it through payers in the u.s it's going to cost a lot of money overseas um and limiting it to certain countries is going to cost them a lot of time. So, but for those of us who are conducting studies only in the U.S., now in my case, it is a study looking at an R mini chop backbone. We don't have the uh, Pola mini CHP. We will, in the very adorably named Polar Bear trial, um, have that data eventually. But, um, but so that's. But we have, we are having those discussions internally for S1918, which is, you know, yes, um, patients up to 80 were included on Polarix and we have overlap with that study. And therefore, should we be changing our standard of care arm? Um, in our case, we have the advantage of the fact that our study has a safety lead in and we are not that far in. Um, if I was much further along, I sincerely don't know what we would do. I suspect we probably would just try to finish the study as it's written, but because we're in early days, we are having these discussions. I don't know what we're going to ultimately decide, um, but I'll say at least for a U.S. only based study, um, it is a conversation that we're having. Well, this was really a lot of fun. Uh, I think, I think, you know, the goal of this was to really delve into the trial that, um, you know, for the most part, we think it's practice changing and hopefully listeners understand the, the nuances and how you, the three of you think about it when you integrate. So before I let you go, each one gets a last, uh, last uh, comment. Uh, Liz, any uh, final thoughts? I feel like I still have a lot more questions than answers, but the data is what it is. It met its primary endpoint. And um, 
as you pointed out, once you, you can't unsee that forest block. Um, so I suspect, even though I will be still have a lot of questions um, about whether or not it is the right thing to do, I suspect once it's approved, there will be certainly situations where I'll use it. Dan, final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think this is a well-designed study, done properly, good sample size, met the endpoint. I, I just still see DLBCL as multiple smaller diseases. And I, I think of therapies that are targeted at these different clusters or subtypes as really the way to go down the road. So I'm happy there's a therapy available today or very soon that can help our patients. I just don't want to give up on trying to tease out the biological differences of this disease. And I, as Matt said, hopefully that will not discourage people from doing it or thinking of DLBC on that way. But, um, but this is a, the study is a big deal. And I think people will be, will be using Paula Archip. Matt, final thoughts? You know, my, my colleagues have said it well, you know, our has been king of the mountain for 20 years. Um, and many of us were growing increasingly disheartened that we'd be unable to defeat it in in the context of a clinical trial. And Polarix has shown us that there is a way forward that we can improve outcomes in patients who desperately need better outcomes. It's a, it's a real investment for my patients and it's, a, and it's proof to those of us that spend our energy trying to improve outcomes for patients with high-risk lymphoma that, that there is a way forward. And hopefully it'll energize all of us to keep doing this important work. Guys, really, thank you so much. I know that it's not easy to uh, pause your schedule and jump on this call, but I really hope that this helps a lot of folks who are listening and um, very much appreciate. And um, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Jody. Thanks, Thanks Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being part of the show. Please let me know uh, what you think of the show, the good, bad, and ugly. You can reach me by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or by sending me an email to shadinabhan00 at outlook.com. You can visit my website, shadinabhan.com, and let me know what you think and reach me through, uh, through there. Um, and I think... Uh, uh, I also want to make sure that if you are a loyal listener to the show, you need to reach out to me so I can send you the famous Healthcare Unfiltered uh, podcast uh, t-shirt. Um, support the podcast, visit the website, look at it on YouTube, and subscribe to it. Write a brief review, refer a colleague to the show. I very much appreciate your support and being part of this journey. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Sir William Osler. It is much more important to know what sort of a patient has a disease than what sort of a disease a patient has. Until next time, take care.